I mean, we don't, we didn't deal with the pill crisis and not talk to doctors and pharmacists. We can't deal with an illicit drug crisis and not talk to people who sell drugs. It doesn't make any sense. But I was already in Greensboro, North Carolina, giving out syringes. And Dan was sending them to me. And we had a group of people that they were doing it. But it was completely illegal. And it didn't look like what it looks like now. I mean, we were breaking the law, getting arrested, giving out syringes, and, and driving people in the lock zone when they called us and said, oh my God, somebody has overdosed, please come. The problem is, drug war doesn't ever stop. Like, there's no nine to five. Like, there's no time where I sit down and I'm like, well, we, we solved that. Like, I'm afraid if liberation came, I might not even notice it. I'd still be fighting. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Imagine yourself driving down a cold and foggy dark road at night. A deer jumps in front of your path and you spin off the road trying to avoid it and crash into a tree. Luckily a passerby saves your life and rushes you to the hospital. You are losing gallons of blood and need a transfusion fast. But the particular hospital where you wind up has a serious technical problem. The equipment that's needed for them to determine your blood type is down. This will require them to rely on subjective personal information in order to figure out the right blood type. You quickly tell them that you are 100% positive that your blood type is A, that you've interacted with healthcare enough to know this, and that you've had your blood tested. You assure them that this is the type of blood you need and expect them to give it to you. Instead of taking your word for it, the nurses run off to grab the doctor. They say, we need an expert opinion on the blood type of this patient. The doctor rushes in and after taking a close look at your eyes and ears, he declares, this patient has type B blood. As a result of your continued protests, the blood is not given to you and instead, the nurses run to another part of the hospital looking for a different expert. This time they bring in a paramedic who works in the field and deals regularly with different types of blood. This paramedic takes a close look in your ears and looks in your eyes and says, this person is obviously a type B blood. Now by this time you've become incredibly frustrated. You're acting a little bit angry and irate and you're telling them, look, if you guys don't give me the right kind of blood, you're going to kill me. This is not a game. So eventually the nurses cave in and they decide to get a third opinion. This time, they say, we will figure out the true type of your blood. They send for the local university and bring in a researcher who knows everything there is to know about blood types. The researcher takes a close look at your skin, your eyes, your hair, your nails, and every part of your body and tells you that you obviously have type O positive blood. Just imagine the frustration and anger that you'd be experiencing as carts of O positive blood were wheeled in to give you in transfusion. This type of thing is exactly what people who use drugs experience on a daily basis. The U.S. is experiencing the worst rates of drug deaths in its history, and yet we continue to consult everyone but people who use drugs in seeking for answers. 
Is it any wonder then that the problem continues to get worse? By now you're probably wondering to yourself, who the hell are you and what have you done with Troy? Well, don't worry, Troy's not gone. He just happens to be moving everything he owns from one state to another. And while Troy settles in Illinois, I'm filling in. This is Aaron Ferguson, a co-producer of the show. Today's episode is a special one, and we will be hosting Louise Vincent. Louise is the executive director of the National Survivors Union. Her conversation with Chris, Troy, and Zach is one of the better ones we've had on this show, and we've been trying to get Louise on for quite some time. We're excited to bring you this conversation from a person who has transformed drug user organizing to a more informed and feminist-oriented approach. We greatly appreciate your participation with and support of our show, and we want to continue to bring you quality content. We hope you enjoy this conversation and find it engaging, and we look forward to connecting with you at the next episode. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guest today is Louise Vincent, director of the NC Survivors Union in North Carolina, and on the leadership team of the National Drug User Union, an organization of former and active drug users who have come together to provide services for a community that is underrepresented and underserved. Louise has a lot of firsthand knowledge of the communities that sell and use drugs and works to educate this community regarding harm reduction. Also with us today is Zachary Siegel, beaming from Chicago, Illinois. Say hi, Zach. Hello. And Chris Morath from Philly. How are you doing, Chris? Hey. Hey, yo. Louise, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm grateful to be here. Grateful to be here. I think this is uh, a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's good to talk with you. Um, we've been trying to get you on the show for, I think, about a year now, and I know there's been a lot going on with all of us, so it's, it's just great to have you here. Yeah, I was just um, explaining that things have been really hard for a lot of a lot of the folks in the union. Uh, many of us went to Puerto Rico and um, almost, you know, it, almost at least half of the people that I am close with that are in the union um, got COVID, you know, while they were there. And so it was the second time I got COVID. So that was really rough mm-hmm. and, and especially really rough in light of, my desire to hear more about drug user health, because I happen to be one of the people that has a lot of struggle due to drug policy, hospital policy, yeah. you know, the way we treat people who use drugs. And I'm a person with enormous privilege. And so if I can't get the help I need. Yeah. Then we're looking at, at major problems. Uh, yeah, Louise, you were talking a little bit about um, the harm reduction conference in, in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and yeah, I was sort of saying, like, I don't want to gossip or, or spread rumors or anything. But, you know, I was unable to make it because I was, you know, obviously afraid of getting COVID. I, I, I'm just really trying to avoid that as much as possible. And unfortunately, I, I heard a lot of people got sick from it, but uh, I hope it was worth it. What would you say? Well, you know, we as a union met two times during the pandemic at the beach with small groups. Um, And I would say that those trips that we made as a small union saved my life and certainly the lives of the people I've talked to. We need connection Um, and we need to be connected. So as far as connection goes, it was really important for me to see people I hadn't seen in a long time. And for some other folks that haven't been out to connect 
unfortunately, during the pandemic, I feel like a lot of the harm reduction organizations that we work with were very quiet during the pandemic. Um, in fact, the only things we really saw coming out media wise um, and some of the other places was national it was national survivors union. I mean, we put out a methadone manifesto. We put out, you know, don't fire your frontline staff during the pandemic. We put out all of these documents that ended up getting published and, 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 and were on many, um, you know, an assortment of different um, magazines and newspapers that I thought were really important. But day to day, drug users were not being met with anything helpful. I mean, even we had to shut our syringe access office. We used a, um, I don't know what they're called, those doors that are half doors. Um, so people couldn't come in. They just came to the half door. So we couldn't let people come in the way we had. We couldn't hug people as, you know, we couldn't do the things that we've always done that are so important to show connection and love. So when I think about the Harm Reduction Conference, and I try to think about, you know, what are the positives? The positives are that we needed to see each other. We needed to be reminded that there is a movement, right? We stopped calling ourselves harm reductionists and started calling ourselves drug war activists because we don't feel like we are harm. We may practice harm reduction, yeah. but we are activists. Um, and nobody was coming to save us. And, and unfortunately, um, at the track in Puerto Rico, I did not hear anything much about drug user health. Yeah. Um, I heard a lot of other good messages, but drug user health is one of the most important things that we can be talking about, especially with SAMHSA creating definitions for harm reduction and, and, and it becoming a more of a mainstream concept. It's important that we have discussions about it and that harm reduction groups have something to say. Absolutely. Maybe this is a good second to just kind of explaining like why a drug user union is is necessary and, and kind of talk about what that really means. Because I think for listeners, when we think of a union, it's it's like a labor union, right? It's 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 solidarity. It's right. It's power in numbers. Uh, how, how does all that fit into the context of, of drug user health and and if you just want to talk about what a drug user union is. And can you incorporate a little history in, of the organization into that as well? Yeah, I, I think that's that's great. I'm, I, this, is a, this is something that's more important to me than anything else we could talk about. What is a drug user union? And I was in DPA. Um, I don't know what year it was, but we had Dan Biggs there. We had, we had all, all, the, all the different unions. You know, Peer Network of New York. We had all of the San Francisco Drug User Union, all of these Urban Survivors Union. We had all of these different groups meeting at DPA. And, you know, we talked and we met, but nothing much came from it. You know, as far as we left that, you know, we put on a, an action, but we left there and, and I didn't see a lot of, I didn't see a lot of, movement or action. And what I knew was we needed to come together. We needed to, we needed to fight together. 
There's not that many of us because, you know, most people don't want to come out and say I'm a drug user. And there's a reason why, because only the people that are already experiencing consequences are really able to admit that they're active drug users or chaotic drug users. Nobody would want to say that. That probably could make your life chaotic. Um, but I, this is where I met Shiloh. And this is where I met um, some of the other folks that, that we ended up creating, creating uh, more of a national union with. And so I went home part of a union from the DPA conference. And I didn't know exactly what that was going to mean, but I was already in Greensboro, North Carolina, giving out syringes and Dan was sending them to me. And we had a group of people that they were doing it, but it was completely illegal. And it didn't look like what it looks like now. I mean, we were breaking the law, getting arrested, giving out syringes and, and driving people in the lock zone when they called us and said, Oh my God, somebody has, has overdosed. Please come. And we would drive as fast as we could go and reverse the overdose and leave because it, everything was so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't okay to have naloxone. It wasn't okay to be doing these things. But what it did do is it opened our eyes. So we saw the overdose crisis coming as it came. You see what I mean? We right. saw the statistics in real time. Like it wasn't, I mean, we saw like, why are all, like, we've been doing this stuff for years and haven't needed naloxone. Like we've been doing this stuff. Like what's going on? You have to take Xanax with, with opiates to overdose. Like this is weird. Right. And, you know, so that was the beginning of our understanding that there was something very different going on with our, our drug supply. And that people were were being negatively impacted by opiates in a way we had never seen. And, you know, we were finding people overdosed on the street. We were finding and people were calling. People were finding us. And I don't know how they even found us. I mean, I was still living in my mom's basement. So I was doing I was doing needle exchange from my mother's basement. I'm, I'm sure she didn't appreciate that all that much. <laughs> Um, in fact, we looked on the um, website, one of the old websites, uh, the purchase, Dave Purchase's uh, list, and my mom's uh, address was on there years later. And I was like, oh, we got to get this off. Sorry, mom. We got to get this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting that you brought up the um, the myth of the rapid heroin overdose. And, and Edwin Brescher wrote it. Uh, Edward Brescher, maybe it was his name from Consumer Reports, wrote an article about this in 1970. Two or seventy-four, somewhere around there, um, when they were having a, what was said to be a spike of of heroin, sudden heroin deaths in New York, that he attributed he eventually attributed to out mixing alcohol. But um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, a lot of people think of heroin as being um, the the one you know primary overdose drug, but it it, it really it, they've done some experiments where they've given um, heroin users. Far excessive doses than their than their to, than their tolerance would suggest they they could you know be be acclimated to and, and they they they're just fine. So um, you you brought it up, so I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you expand on that if you would. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to give you a scientific answer. I'm going to give you the answer that we that we saw, that we experienced, that we what I knew was that people weren't dying of heroin overdose. Occasionally we'd give people mouth-to-mouth resuscitation for 30 minutes if it was really bad. Um, but we didn't have a lot of crises where people were dying. When people died, it was from a mix of drugs. And in fact, our tools, our harm reduction tools are not appropriate to use anymore because they would say things like you can, you can die within one to three hours of taking the drug, right? Or go slow or some of these things that, yeah, those are okay, but that's not suggesting that you can have one little, you know, sugar granule of, of a substance and be, you know, go out before you've taken the needle out of your arm. In fact, one of the tools that I had explained that somebody overdosing with a needle in their arm was like the movies. Like, so that's what we were teaching before, you know, that you had to mix the, 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 the heroin with, 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 with some other substance, alcohol, benzos, something like that. And that was the real risk. And the risk changed. And I'm going to tell you what, the tools haven't changed and the policies haven't changed to meet the drugs that we're dealing with on the ground today. And that's a tragedy. That's an absolute tragedy. I agree. And I really do want to talk with you about um, how things are changing. Uh, That's some really good perspective on the history. And and it must have just been fucking horrifying frankly that you know like suddenly all these people are overdosing and you have no idea why and like it it, it took a couple of years for institutions to really recognize the severity of this issue and be like even start testing for fentanyl in autopsies and that kind of thing um but tell us now how things are changing because i'm really curious about this and and chris probably has a really great perspective on this as well Uh, but i'm especially concerned about uh, xylazine uh, appearing in a lot of different uh, well, dope samples and that kind of thing. What, what, what changes are you seeing? Well, I'm going to just be really honest with you. I don't see enough change. The fact that our national conference wasn't focused on this is a tragedy. I mean, I don't know what happened, but our methadone doctor died at, on this trip. And I don't, I don't know how that happened. Don't know what happened. Don't know the details. But we've got people dying. And I don't even know which ones of my friends and people that I work with are alive. I mean, honestly, like I'll think about a person and, and I'll be like, well, are they dead or alive? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. There's so many people. I have lost friends, lovers, participants. I mean, and when you start, my daughter, my own daughter, when you, she died in a rehab, um, when you start losing everyone you know, and you don't have any, I mean, thank God I had Dan. Thank God I had Dan, because Dan was at least sending me syringes, at least sending me naloxone. I didn't know anything about those things. So at least, you know, I am so grateful that there was harm reductionists working to try to get some knowledge out. 
how can the little bit of knowledge we got out back then, right? Like we should be flooded with information about this now. The fact that people still think that they're doing this or still call the drug they're doing heroin and it's blue is strange to me. You know, we were going to have a bring heroin back campaign, send it to the cartel, but we didn't think it would be very effective. And (laughs) so, so, but just to give context to listeners, you're talking about Dan Big, correct? Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. Well, just in case anybody hasn't heard of him, I mean, I was never lucky enough to meet him personally. I know Zach has met him. He's a Chicago guy. Was a Chicago guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think what I'm reading from from Louise is just that the explosion of mortality is probably beginning around twenty what. 16 27 like when 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 fentanyl really started to to begin to saturate the market that that qualitatively and severely changed the drug supply and people's drug use and addictions in ways that still haven't really been appreciated at like a at a policy level or just in like an everyday understanding level like i think uh like these synthetic substances and fentanyl and all their analogs and then trank and xylazine and these benzo analog like that what we're talking about today is something so different than 10 or 15 years ago like if you look at the numbers like heroin overdose deaths haven't really ever like risen that far above like 15,000 per year uh, deaths wise, like it's, it kind of hovers and same with oxycodone, like it, it, it spiked up there for a little bit and plateaued and has gone down. And, and when we're talking about synthetic stuff, like fentanyl, we're talking about like six, seven, eight times that level of, of mortality. And so it, I just don't think it's been like accounted for and really understood, um, how much more dangerous and and deadly it is out there. Like, I think we all have seen it through our journalism and Louise through your own experience, but um, I still think there's just so much that has to be said about how different it is. Well, and if you haven't thrown away your harm reduction tools that you teach from, if you haven't thrown those away and created new tools to talk about harm reduction, then you're harming people. You're actively harming people. You are not helping them. You are harming them. It is not harm reduction. You are giving them old, bad information that is no longer relevant. Yeah. And that is not okay. You know, and, and I see it continuously. The old information, the old slogans, the old stuff. Because, you know, we don't have a lot of money as organizations. and and it's. You know, it's hard to create all new tools, but it must be done. And that's what a union is really about, is it's helping create these things so we all aren't reinventing the wheel. Can, can you give a couple examples of some of these things you'd like to see updated? Like, what what do you want to see changed? I'd like specifics, if that's okay. Well, I mean, any injection drug use document, any PowerPoint or presentation about these things, like, if you're talking about 
All right. So if, if you're using the slogan, go slow, that's nice. Go slow is a good idea, but you're going to go slow and die. I mean, I, I'm just thinking like fentanyl is just a completely different beast than than any other like street opioid that's been popular in the last couple decades. You know, it's just like pharmacologically it's different uh, its properties are different it, the way it's metabolized is different like and and chris you probably saw this like very much up close in philly when that market transitioned it must have been a complete clusterfuck yeah i mean for, first we transitioned from the sourcing from southeast asia to colombia and finally to mexico and fentanyl in um, 2006 i guess was the first time we had a flush and then that lulled until, you know, around 2013 when it really spiked. And then the xylazine has just really confused everything because it's, it's, it takes a very high dose of xylazine to actually kill somebody. I mean, it, it, it's, and it's become very complicated to, for people to determine what is uh, an overdose that requires um, naloxone. And somebody that just needs to be shifted or moved, and and then they're going to come 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 you know wake up, which has happened a couple of times to me. Um, the worst manifestations are the are the wounds that people see, and 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 we're still trying to figure out you know the best course of action for those. I I could show you pictures that would you know make you cringe. I have them on my arm. I mean, this is real to me. Um, are those wounds treatable? Like, do, can they go away? Like, I don't even know. I don't know. And I'm working on it. Um, but when we talk about a hospital system and a medical system that sees track marks and mistreats you, you can't even imagine how they treat you when they see a xylazine wound. Um, it's devastating. And I have been for help so many times and had the most, uh, just the experiences that, Make me say things like I'd rather die than go to the hospital. And I hear this from other people, too. I mean, our hospitals have turned into police states are, you know, if they think that you're using drugs, they mandate you to your bed, take away your phones, take away. You know, you can't have any visitors. You can't, you know, it's it's everything wrong they could do. They do. And I'm going to tell you the real problem I see with xylazine or something that affected me was that I was traveling and I did not know it was xylazine. We didn't have a drug checking machine at the time, but I thought I had found some amazing (laughs) version of fentanyl that allowed me to stay well for 15 hours. (laughs) You know, or these very long times. And I don't know how it works. I don't know what in the hell is going on. I don't know why it happens that way. I've tried to talk to some epidemiologists and doctors about it. You know, they don't listen to me much. Um, I do have a master's degree in public health. So I, you know, I that should help, but it doesn't. Um, Like all of these things. There was positives. And when we ask people, why do you use drugs? We have to remember that there are reasons why people use drugs. And one of the reasons I was using these drugs was because I couldn't travel and be on methadone. 
because I was not able to guess those. I was not able to get where I needed to be. They were too, they knew I was an advocate and boy, they love to fuck with me. Um, my clinic hates me. Um, and, and these are not exaggerations. We have a methadone, uh, podcast where, where, uh, where we have the woman on the phone talking to me, telling me that I've failed methadone and that I need to, and then I, and then I need to just make sure I have naloxone and, and do what I need to do. Um, well, they set you up to fail. Yes. There is no, there is nothing worse than the way our meth, you know, if we are not investing and fighting to change methadone and buprenorphine, we are not doing anything to help what's going on. And if we don't start addressing cocaine and crystal meth and, and provide tools for those drugs, then we're equally shitty because there's things you can do. I have boost canned oxygen. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's canned oxygen. And let me tell you, if you're about to have a cocaine overdose, if you're about, if you feel like somebody looks like they're going to have an opiate overdose, you know, you know, right before they do go out, but you don't want to naloxone them because they're still awake. And that seems kind of hateful. This boost oxygen is amazing. It's a miracle. I'm going to write the damn company and beg them to give it to us. They sell that in uh, CBS and Rite Aid and places like that. I've seen that before. Right? Yeah, Lowe's. Yeah. I, it, it saved me from... Uh, a number of cocaine overdoses where I was about to seize and, and I put, you put the yeah. oxygen on your face and you, and you blast it in you, and, you know, and it's like 99.5% oxygen. Interesting. And, um, you know, and that's all good, except I got my, my partner got, a, got arrested for huffing oxygen. What the fuck? <laughs> and of course we got out of it, but like, but like, what the fuck, man? Like, this is, the bizarre shit I see that's like we're trying to find tools and create strategies to help people, right? One of the things that I would say is don't use alone and don't use at the same time. So not just don't use it like alone, like it's still no good if you both use at the same time because you're both going to overdose in the car and then or wherever you are. And who's going to save you? Right. Louise, um, what kind of challenges has, have, have you faced as an organizer creating a, a, a national drug users union in America that maybe hasn't been represented in other countries? Uh, is, it, is, it our, is it our puritanical mindset? Is it the size of the scope of the country and things like that? Um, I, think it's, I think it's a couple. I think it's a lot of those things. We were using... GoToMeeting and Zoom and these tools before anybody else, like before the pandemic. And we were making, we were making some headways with it. We used that and we used another platform called Basecamp and we tried to reach folks all over the country. This is why the harm reduction conference and DPA conference and whatever conference are important because those were our times to come together and meet like, and, you know, so if you weren't on the Zoom call or the this call, then you could at least show up at the conference and get to know us, right? There's so many challenges because, one, we're far apart. Two, we're dealing with different issues in different states. Things are different here in North. 
2016 is when needle exchange became legal in North Carolina. When did it become legal in Seattle? Like 93? (laughs) I don't know. Like the 90s? (laughs) Right. So we've got all these different, like what's important in your local area can be very, very different. Right? And so we need to be focused on local areas. We saw issues with not being diverse enough because it's hard to find people that will come out and say, I'm an active drug user. Um, Not a great idea if you don't want, I mean, I believe that some of the things that have happened to me have happened directly because I've been on TV or I've been on the news or I've done something in the New York times and, and it has upset certain people. So it, It's, you know, Carl Hart is one of the few people that comes out as an active user. He has a lot of privilege, but I worry about him. Uh, You know, I worry about what somebody will be able to do to him. We are not out of the closet because we say we are. We are kicked out of the closet. You know what I mean? Like, we, we have an illusion that we're in the closet, but the minute we get arrested, or the minute something happens, like it's everybody's business. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm a genius when people think I'm not using, and I'm an insane tyrant when people think I'm using. So the way I'm perceived, the way, and a lot of times people get it wrong and I'm not using and they think I am and they'll say something or I'm using, you see what I'm saying? So it very much affects how people believe you or take you in. And it's worth mentioning that there's people even within the harm reduction community. Oh, very much. It's, it's been really an eye-opening to me how, I mean, we have organizations that call themselves harm reduction organizations that will fire an active user, um, you know, or will, it will, will, will you know, it, and it, I just don't, it, it's such a mixed message, you know. I was just going to say, we got a message from a listener who was like, yeah, I work in harm reduction. I love your show. One of my coworkers was being a chaotic user, so I got him fired. And I was just like, "How do we even fucking respond to this message?" Like, because they're helping in- us, they're making sure we get help. You know that that this ridiculous. We have a joke at the user union: you can't be part of our union until you've been fired for using drugs at a harm reduction organization. Like, you know, that's like because people come to us because they've been fired. And that's why people need unions to protect themselves from their shitty bosses. (laughs) So the the drug user union, it kind of, it's the same thing as any other union. Uh, And I got to tell you, we've come a long way. I mean, we provide work for people, contract work. We don't have big time. We have no hardly infrastructure. We need a lot of help. It would be really nice if the harm reduction organizations would come through and, and really put some, put some, um, real effort into helping us build and helping us and, and mentoring us. And, and, you know, we don't have a lot of people to look to. Our, our mentors are dead. You know, there's not a lot of people that I can go to that have built unions in the United States because most of them have died because of the war on drugs and because of, because of fentanyl and xylazine and anybody that thinks that people will continue to use xylazine, even when they know 
Um, no, no. Nan Golden, the, the photographer, was kind enough to auction off a, a picture, get us an FTIR machine, and the first person's life it saved was mine. Wow. And we had a big overdose awareness day, um, not this last year, but before. And we christened it. We should get... We should get Nan Golden on the podcast. I haven't seen the new documentary yet. Um, I mean, honestly, I've heard some criticism of it. I haven't watched it. I love Nan Golden as I love her as a photographer. She's an amazing I mean, inspiration to me, and absolutely just so incredible as an artist. But I don't. I, I feel like we can maybe cut this or get into it more. But I think she does a lot of um, too much focus on pharmaceutical companies being a cause of the opioid crisis. Yeah, the, the, the Sackler thing, it's like, sorry, but that was very, like, 2006. Like, it's just, it's just, it, it's history. It's recent history. But, yeah. Right. But we need to bring those folks along. True. Right? Like, like instead of there being a split, like, we at our Overdose Awareness Day, we brought her, and we also brought pain patients. And they talked to each other, and Nan apologized. Mm to her for anything that she had not, you know, that's her experience. And I think we tend to talk about what we know about. And, and, and I think that there's a lot we could do. Um, I would rather help people that are, are, are in that area struggling than people in 12 step groups causing lots of harm and trying to move them out of their thinking. Um, that is e- even more problematic to me. So, you know, we have a lot of people that could be allies, but we have a hard time overlooking or educating. We love to educate people that already agree with us. Let me say that we need to get used to educating people that don't necessarily agree with us. I I love the phrase from Freud. It's called the narcissism of small differences, right? Yes. Um, Those get those small little differences get totally magnified and exaggerated and blown up when people probably agree on 98% of everything else, but that 2% will uh, derail everything. And, and I didn't know that Nan Golden bought an FTIR machine after auctioning a photo. That's cool as hell. Yeah, she did it so we could test drugs and we christened it and named it Nan. So we have Nance <laughs> in our office getting used every day to help folks stay alive. And I am so grateful. There's another documentary called Love in the Time of Fentanyl. And it's all about the Canada Overdose Prevention Society and the Vancouver consumption sites. Um, uh, Insight? I don't know if it was Insight. It might have been like the, because there, there's like a satellite, there's like, there's like peer run models that's that's kind of drug user right ran and organized and i think that that's where this one was was filmed which made it um yeah just super interesting to watch and and i wonder like it it just sounds like the canadian uh harm reduction experience and the organizing and the unions there are a model for for the u.s in some way but it also sounds like this country and the politics and our context is so different. Racist. That... <laughs> <laughs> our racist beliefs are so, 
the, what we've done to people to separate them are so exaggerated and so awful in the United States that Canadians just aren't like they don't have the same same like I'm not saying they're perfect but I am saying they don't it's not it's not the same and it's very difficult for someone from Canada to understand the politics of the US South right they are like light years ahead of us. And so maybe you can talk about the, the North Carolina politics, like trying to do what you do in North Carolina sounds like just, yeah, rough. It's been really difficult. Um, when my daughter died, I, I, I had worked in harm reduction for a while, but when my daughter died, I, I totally lost it. Um, you know, here my daughter had died in a drug treatment center that did not have naloxone. And how could I have let this happen? And I was just devastated. I mean, just absolutely devastated. And anybody that knows me knows that, you know, people use drugs for reasons. And I am sure there are many people that were like, that's the end for Louise. Like we won't be seeing her. I mean, it's a miracle that I am alive and still able to do the work. Um, it is the work that saved my life. And I went like quadruple time and started working more than I've ever worked. <laughs> like no one would ever be like, oh, Louise, she's going to be a workaholic. <laughs> like that wasn't ever going to be an issue in my life, but it actually became very real. I worked to do stuff, to change drug laws and to make a change and to, you know, make sure people heard messages and, and, and talk to folks harder than I've ever worked. And this went on for a couple of years until it almost killed me. I mean, the problem is the drug war doesn't ever stop. Like there's no nine to five. Like there's no time where I sit down and I'm like, well, we, we solved that. Um, <laughs> like I'm afraid if liberation came, I might not even notice it. I'd still be fighting. You know, we get used to the fight. And um, and it's only been through multiple health tragedies and, and, and difficulties that I have been forced to slow down. And the xylazine being the worst. Yeah. Um, the xylazine, I mean, without the FTIR machine, I mean, they changed the batch that I was using. It, we it, The other stuff it had, it, and I was trying to get into a methadone clinic, but not it was not successful. I couldn't get over 40 milligrams. Uh, there's a filter article about it. Um, but, but the thing was, is I couldn't, I couldn't do what I needed to do. So that seemed like the answer. And one day they changed the batch and it was too strong. And I, and we had just gotten the machine and learned how to use it. And I told my partner, I need you to take this to the office and I need you to test it. There is something wrong. And before I could even like, I mean, and within minutes, he called and was like, don't do anything else. Don't do another drop. Flush it down the toilet. I'll be home in a second. I'll explain to you what's going on. We got a problem. And then he began to tell me all of the side effects and all of the things that were happening to me that I was seeing happen. And I just didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. North Carolina has been hit quite hard. Philly is saturated. You can't, you can't right. avoid it. But um I have been exploring what they call the dark net adjacent markets. Like yes. Sort of direct mail. I've tested 
have tested heroin that, um, from a broker that got it from Mexico that was 70% pure, unadulterated. And, you know, you just need some money to, to get it. And I, I got I got to thinking about this idea of, of buyers clubs like they like, you know, and and I was wondering if, if that's something that has ever crossed your mind or, you know, where you can. And these this, these people take their they their, they take it really seriously. He gets everything tested. This person before he sends it, set, puts the results up online. You know, absolutely. I think it, it's the only choice we have. If they're going to leave us unable to access methadone, buprenorphine is not strong enough, so it's hard to use buprenorphine. And then methadone is inaccessible and difficult. Uh, buprenorphine's endpoint is abstinence, so you basically. They're giving 30-day shots and all of this stuff. Naltrexone isn't medicine at all. It's just like designed to make you miserable um, <laughs> and not be able to feel the drugs you're using. So as long as we have that, I mean, methadone is the only thing close to safe to safe supply, and it is really hard to access. So in my opinion, a buyer's club is the only thing we have to, to really begin to change things. I mean, I'm about it. I think we ought to do it. I think we ought to get with, you know, I believe with all my heart, we need to be at conferences and we need to be with the folks having meetings on Zoom or what the hell ever, talking about how to make this shit happen. And we shouldn't stop until we do, because I can't imagine being 18 and only having used fentanyl um, and dying the second time I used. I mean, this, you know, this is not what drugs are supposed to, this is not my experience. And what, let me just say, and we have just, you know, we have, we have trafficking marked at four grams of fentanyl. I mean, everything else is like 28 grams, 155 pounds, you know, all of these big numbers, but then you get to to fentanyl and you have mandatory minimums and you have uh, trafficking laws set at four grams because it's a weapon of mass destruction (laughs) well yeah and if you touch it you might just explode into thin air (laughs) you know it's just bullshit you know we gotta what we need to do is we need to talk to district attorneys and teach them how to talk to parents who have lost their children so that they don't end up saying we'll get him we'll put him you know we'll put this person in whatever it's probably you know if if these parents knew how often their own children sold drugs or middleman drugs, I don't think they'd say these things. And we have a campaign called Reframe the Blame that I encourage you to look up. Its original name, I'm going to tell you because I think it's, you know, when we were first starting, the original name was My Overdose, My Bad. But we decided people wouldn't right. like that. <laughs> and we... And we changed it yeah. to reframe the blame. So it is a. I like I like the first name. It's <laughs> cheeky, but yes. uh, I can see it. I can see it coming off as a bit too sardonic or or something. <laughs> My bad. Yeah, we weren't we weren't going to risk it. Or cavalier, maybe you know. I did want to talk about this though. You know, you, you, you I know that you've sold drugs uh, to to supplement. Your, your drug use, right? And there's sort of this thing that I, we really want to emphasize this on Narcotica that uh, the line between drug seller and drug user is really, really blurry. Like, and- <laughs> it's as blurry as it gets. I mean, 
when I started running the needle exchange, I swore that I would not touch or middleman or do any of that because I feared that I would disrupt or get a conspiracy charge around the needle exchange. And then we'd have problems that it would actually harm the community of needle exchange. So I did this before I was ever running a needle exchange, but I know lots of people in giving someone drugs is a kindness if, or selling someone drugs is a kindness. If I ask you for drugs and you won't give them to me, we're probably not going to be friends for very long. Um, like these, I mean, you can just hear older women being like, Oh, I have a purpose set upstairs. If you're in pain, like, why is that? Okay. But, but these other things just aren't, or I have an Adderall that's the exact same thing as crystal meth. But I mean, if I give you crystal meth, then boy, oh boy, I am, you know, America's number one predator. I might even classify as a super, you know, all these things. But selling drugs, it like if you are not selling a enormous amount of drugs, you are not hitting the place where you make enough money to be selling drugs. Like these are just ways to make a little bit of extra dollars, support your family. If you already have a felony, I mean, I have a master's degree and I don't think I'm qualified to work most places because I have like 15 felonies. You know, and if you, I would certainly rather somebody middleman something than go rob somebody. I mean, when you're dope sick, you need money. And this is a way to make money. And nobody in my world, I've never seen, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I've never seen anybody try to force anyone else to take their expensive ass drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Please take my drugs. I want you to try this. People don't try to get people. In fact, what I see most often is people not wanting to let people try a drug that they have that they've never had because they don't want to be responsible for for them getting introduced to it. And so it's tricky. Yeah, there's a there's a bit of um, community responsibility with drug selling, and a lot of drug sellers can be considered sort of like freelance. Uh, pharmacists, you know, a lot of them do do drug testing. Um, a lot of them do make sure that their product is pure. They do a lot of uh, uh, harm reduction is the word, uh, you know, because they care about their clients. And, you know, no one, no one wants anybody to die from this. But yeah, I'm going to tell you when my daughter died, one of the people that sold me drugs wouldn't come over. Um, and they just said, Louise, I'm worried that you're not okay. You know, I'm worried that this is not a good time for you to do this. And and that was like the people that I know that sell me drugs, I've known for 20 years. Like these are not, I'm not copping on the street. You know, these are people I've known forever. Like they come and get their drugs tested. I tell them what they have in their drugs. They go tell the people when it's got xylazine in it, they got to get rid of this shit. Like like, this is real. Like, most drug sellers actually use drugs. Um, maybe not the kind of drugs they're selling. But as we make it more difficult to be a drug seller, we get younger and younger folks selling drugs that know less and less and less about what they're selling. And that is risky. Like, your dealer needs to know how to, just like a doctor needs to know. 
I mean, we don't, we didn't deal with the pill crisis and not talk to doctors and pharmacists. We can't deal with any other, you know, an illicit drug crisis and not talk to people who sell drugs. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, I I was just thinking about the relationships between drug users and, and, and drug sellers and how, there's there's actually really interesting research on this from from people like Jennifer Carroll and, and others who who kind of document like anthropologically or ethno ethnographically that when people have a relationship with their drug seller, it kind of acts and works as some form of consumer protection. And that, like you're saying, you've known your your suppliers and sellers for many, many years, you have a relationship and, and say one of them were to get arrested or raided or shut down, you would then have to go maybe to someone you don't know as well, who maybe you don't know their product or they don't know you. And and that introduces all kinds of risk now that Absolutely. Uh, that wasn't there. And so there's this like mechanism by which the interdiction and the drug enforcement and raiding trap houses, these drugs get paraded on press conferences is look at all the drugs we took off the streets. Like, you know, give us a parade and a pat on the shoulder for keeping our streets safe. And what we don't see is the back end consequence of that, which is probably more overdoses yes. in that vicinity because of that seizure where people now are scrambling to go somewhere else and they don't know the product and now they're at tremendous risk. And, and that's just uh, kind of the drug war logic in a nutshell is the enforcement side is driving overdoses. Absolutely. It's a huge protective factor. And the people that I have dealt with um, call me and say things like, I'm going to come test it. And then do you know somebody that can test it after that? And so I can figure out what I got. You know, I spend a lot of time talking to people about, or the people that sell drugs, what they have, what they need to do. I mean, I remember originally when I was when I was handing out naloxone, one of the guys was like, I don't need any naloxacaine or whatever that shit is. And then about three weeks later, I get this hysterical phone call. It's like, I'm at the Hotel Six. Whatever you said you had, I need. Can you get here now? And and real respect has been um, created for this. And so no one that I know that 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 sells any product. Um, operates without naloxone, operates without fentanyl test strips. Um, I encourage them all to come get their drugs tested. Um, most of them do. Um, and I encourage them to call and ask me questions. And, you know, it, I'm not a beacon of health, so it, it ends up being kind of funny. But for a lot of people, I, I know more than anyone else that they could ask about some of this. And so it's important that we have harm reduction groups that have knowledgeable people in them so that people are there to ask the question. I mean, we have a flyer that hangs at our, at our, uh, at our, at our window that says, when you buy and you sell, your texts are your tail. You know, <laughs> your texts don't ever go anywhere. We're telling people, you know, like, don't just think you delete that and it's gone. 
Like, do not text, bring me a 50. Like, we know that the DEA is teaching parents to not buy Apple phones so that they can get in and, 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 and get these messages and charge people with homicide. So, I mean, we have to be, we have to use our imagination here. And people don't like it. I mean, people don't like you to help drug sellers. And in South, that's directly related to racism. And it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did want to ask you about this. Um, uh, you, you were on last week tonight uh, with John Oliver uh, about a year ago when they did an episode on harm reduction. First of all, how did that make you feel to be on there? And, and I, I, I want to play the clip from that. All we do is disconnect people in the United States. So if you are found to be a person who uses drugs and needs help, we start with disconnecting you. And I truly believe that addiction is the opposite of connection. So what we do is everything wrong to help a person. We disconnect people from their families. We disconnect people from their friends. We alienate people from work. We disconnect them from community. And then we disconnect them from their freedom, finally. And when people finally have nothing left, then they will use until they die. I really like what you said there about, you know, how connection is the opposite of addiction. Um, I think that really helps people understand some of the underpinnings of addiction, why it manifests. But uh, how did it make you feel being on the show? Because harm reduction is sort of becoming a little bit more mainstream. And we want it to be. You know, people that say, oh, we don't want harm reduction mainstream. Well, why not? I want everybody using harm reduction. I don't want it to lose its voice. I don't want it to lose its power. But I damn sure want everybody to know how to use harm reduction, right? How to, how to you know, why it's important that we use harm reduction and not just abstinence-based programs or work programs. We're going to work it out of you. I went to a fucking cattle ranch and had to cut cow balls off when I was third. They're not cow balls. Cows are girls. But whatever they are, steer balls. Um, I mean, and that was supposed to cure me. Uh, you know, we, Good God. We, need to, we need to do better. We need to do better all the way around. But it was thrilling to be on John Oliver. I admire his show. He had just done a really good one on sex workers, too. I felt like he did his research. Um, you know, they called us, they called everybody, it seemed like, to really make sure they had a handle. And when I say addiction is the opposite of connection, you know what? In the United States, we do everything opposite of what I think we should do. So you start out young, we take you away from your friends. Then we take you away from your family. Then we make it so you can't have a job. We kick you out of school and then we take your freedom. Those things give me no reason to live. I mean, if, if you were listening, what I said was doing this work kept me alive when my daughter died. That's connection. I was doing something I loved. And that made all the difference in the world. Did it make it not hurt? Fuck no, I still am a mess. But it connected me to people. It connected me to the union. It connected me to y'all. It connected me in all these different ways to the things that warm my heart. And it allowed me to fight with my community because I don't care if we lose the bill or lose the legislation. We need to be out there screaming, fuck this. 
You know, like it doesn't matter if we win or we lose. We win every time we get together in solidarity and say no more to this. I agree. And that's why I see things like the harm reduction conference in Puerto Rico uh, being so essential. I mean, obviously there was a risk of COVID. Obviously a lot of people got sick from that event. Um, and, but it was, I, I couldn't judge anybody for that because it was just so important for people to, to reconnect after being so disconnected by the pandemic. I've talked to a lot of people that are uh, upset about the institutionalization of harm reduction. Um, and that's because finally the federal government is starting to give money to these programs a lot more and, 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 and it's becoming a more of a mainstream issue. And I, I hear from a lot more people that say like you did that I, I'm not a harm reductionist. I'm a drug war activist that practices harm reduction. And I have to agree with that. Like harm reduction is just a technology or a philosophy or something that's a tool to get us to where we want to be, which is a healthy, productive society. They're always going to have drugs as a part of it. Let's just make it so there's not drugs that fucking kill people. But the institutionalization here is 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 concerning to a lot of people. And I recognize that. And I think that there's a lot of talk of splintering off from the harm reduction coalition and some of these other bigger groups that are getting federal grants about this. And I just wonder how you feel about that. I think we need to work with them demand. They listen to us. I am not the nicest person always to, to, to have to be in a room with when we're doing this. Like I am not going to let us get used and exploited and neither are the other folks in the union. When I got to a place where I felt like the union was like, when I got to a place, I don't know, it didn't take long, that like it was way too much and I was doing more than I could and not doing great at anything because I was doing too much everything. It occurred to me that we needed a leadership team. We needed a diverse leadership team made up of people around the country that could fight for a national harm reduction group. And damn it, I am more proud. If I die today, I can at least say that that's something that happened. And I believe the National Union will will rock on. I mean, Aaron, Dinah, Robert, Isaac, Shiloh, you know, like Will Jr. was with. I mean, we have we have Katie Simon, like we have brilliance and, and, and wonderful people that I'm so glad. That, that are with us and, 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 and fighting with us. And that means that I don't have to be the mouthpiece. It doesn't have to be my experience. It's a lot of people's experience. You know, all of our experiences are different. And all of us need to fight in different ways. And, you know, we've got sex workers that use drugs. We've got, I mean, and you know what? We also have a clause that says we are all supposed to be working with some sort of mentor. And what we mean by mentor is not traditional mentor. It's somebody that would, maybe they don't use drugs, yeah, but they'll fight with us when it comes time. They're not going to just go home at five o'clock and be like, well, day's done. They're going to come with us and they're going to put their lives on the line and they're going to put their shit on the line because they believe that we'll have a better world if we, um, if we do this. And I am so grateful for the union. Um, and we're going to keep rocking and rolling. And if you want to join our union, please do. It's easy. I mean, we've got Nick working with new new members. We've got, we've got, we've got so much. So I'm sure they'll put a, a link or, or whatever, or they'll give you a link. Yes. 
yeah we'll we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes um we, we couldn't agree more i think that you know the people that you listed have nothing but respect for them and and they're doing the important work yeah i i really believe in 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 what you're doing and i i believe in unions you know across any field period and and i encourage all the listeners to to really check this out and see what they're up to and if you think it'll help you or if you think it, you have a role or if you're looking for a place this this might be it i mean i think that that's or if you have a skill exactly if you write grant if you do some of the stuff that's you know we need help we want you we are not the union that says we don't want anybody that doesn't do this or that we are the union that says we want to give people that are most impacted the voice you know the biggest voice but we will accept help from the folks that are willing to give us help and there are so many of those people in my life i could not begin to list i'm scared i didn't list somebody from the union and i'm worried but if i did i love you too um i just have a bad brain xylocene um and, and that might be truth i i just i just love the union it's changed my life it's made everything it's made it's made everything different and it gives me a reason to want to be here um and and that's for real yeah that's really that's really powerful and we're we're glad you're here and glad you're you're doing what you're doing and i i think um whether it's in north carolina or or elsewhere like i think people organizing and connecting and making themselves heard is is crucial especially right now like when things are yeah so chaotic and so disconnected and it's hard to hard to see where this all shakes out we're in a very volatile transitional place and i think um there's far far too much mortality and sickness and something yeah truly drastic has to be done to begin to address this yes and we need to stop fighting about the little shit we do we need to find a way to come together and understand that all of our experience are different and it's okay for us to have you know, different opinions and different ideas. And we need to learn how to do that. We need to learn how to do that. And, and, and we need to make sure that we don't politicize this too much or it'll become like, it'll become like these other things that are untouchable. Like we've got work to do and we need education. We need opportunities and we need people that are tired and ready to, to, to say no more to this. Um, because I know for me, I, I, I don't want to watch anyone else I love go to prison. I don't want to watch anyone else I love die. I, I am so beaten up by this. And so is everyone. And we have the power to make some difference and we should. We all are beat up by this. It's, uh, it's an extreme kind of fatigue. Um, well, Louise, thanks so much for coming on Narcotica. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about? Well, we have an amazing leadership team. I hope you'll have an opportunity to interview all of them at some point. There are so many pe- people working so hard and they can give you different perspectives about it that, that I just can't. 
because I have my own, you know, I'm one of the older, I'm one of the older folks that, you know, and some of the newer folks are doing some really amazing things. And, um, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. You know, I was able, I just want to say this. I, I got really sick from COVID and I was able to call one of the union members or one of the leadership team. And they were, and they said yes. And were at my house two days later, helping run my organization here, North Carolina Survivors Union. And that doesn't happen. Like, like they don't think drug users do stuff like that. And it happened. And, and, and I was so grateful. And I knew that, like, I have something more than a union, more than friends. I have something really special. And, and I invite you all to, to experience it. Yeah. It is so worth it. Truth. Very, very true. Yeah, thank you. Um, where can people find you online? Oh, we've got Basecamp. Um, I'm going to have to send you the links. Uh, but we do have www.ncurbansurvivorsunion or urbansurvivorunion.org. We're in the middle of revamping a website. But Basecamp is our link where we um, where we actually organize. And so if you want to get that, you just hit me up at Louise at ncsunion.org. All right. Thank you for having me. This is such a privilege. Thank you so much for coming on. Great. Well, we are we are doing the damn thing, getting shit published, doing stuff they said we could never do. And so thank you for letting letting me come on and talk about it. Well we'll make sure we'll make sure all those links and your email and everything is is out there for people to find and yeah, it's uh it's amazing to hear the work that you do and uh grateful that you can tell us about it and always learn a lot from talking to you, Louise. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, y'all. There's a Southern goodbye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Narcomedia, co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the Urban Survivors Union, which is the National Drug Users Union, a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in America. This is the way social change happens from the ground up, and we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. 
tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcast. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug-using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.